the devil running away from us in defeat. But we need to look closely at the text and we need to see it in its context. We need to check over our own experience as Christians. Then we will realise that according to this verse, victory over the devil is conditional. Something else needs to come first. And that verse 7 tells us is submission to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This command goes against the dominant attitude of most of mankind today. The natural response of most people would be, why should I submit myself to God? This is our first main thought this evening. Why submit to God? Why submit to God? An attitude of submission can hardly be said to be popular these days. We live in an age that some people regard as an age of unparalleled rebellion. Children against parents, students get tutors, terrorists against governments. The very spirit of the age we live in is a spirit of arrogance, a spirit of self-seeking aggression. Today's guiding principle isn't submit yourselves, it's assert yourselves. It's promote your own interests. It was a different spirit the Bible requires of us. What a different spirit we see in the life of Jesus. We're told that while he lived with his parents in Nazareth, he was submissive to them. And think about the time in Jesus' life that that reference speaks of. It was a time when he was a teenager. As a Jewish boy, he would have come of age at the age of 12. So he was no longer legally bound to his parents as he had been before. He knew that Joseph also wasn't his father. So Joseph had no right to enforce all the normal rights of a parent. Yet within that home, the Son of God lived in humble obedience and gentle submission. And this despite the fact that Joseph and Mary were both flawed sinners. Now the mark of a spirit-filled Christian isn't aggressive assertiveness, it's submission. He doesn't strut around boasting of his spiritual superiority. He has a spirit of humility. The letter to the Romans urges us, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour. And the letter to the Ephesians speaks of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, the spirit of submission, the principle of submission, is right for our relationships with each other. So it must be right for our relationship with God. Our text this evening urges us to submit to God. But what reasons does the Bible give us for this? First, it's right to submit to God for who he is. It's right to submit to God because of who he is. The letter to the Romans speaks of the sheer stupidity of man resisting God's will. It says this, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Here's the illustration of a potter making a pot out of a lump of clay. We're asked whether we could imagine an absurd scenario. 
a finished pot getting up from the potter's wheel and cross-questioning the potter. Imagine the pot complaining to the potter about its size, its shape or its intended use. The idea is obviously ludicrous. When the potter takes the clay in his hands, he has the right to do whatever he wants to do with it. He is the undisputed master of the situation. In a much deeper sense, the same is true of our relationship with God. God isn't really the moulder of our human clay. He is its maker. So he has every right to demand our submission and our obedience. Second, it's right for us to submit to God because of what he says. Notice that our verse says, submit yourselves therefore to God. The word therefore shows that the command arises from the statement in verse 6. God opposes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God deliberately sets his face against arrogance. An unbeliever hears the good news of salvation through Christ. He's told there's nothing he can do to earn his salvation. It's all the work of God's grace. Salvation is given to the undeserving sinner through no merit of his own. Now, confronted with this truth, instinctively, an unbeliever rebels. I don't accept that. I'm going to earn my own salvation. I'm going to trust that at the end of the day, God will accept me on the basis of my own efforts. But when a person has that attitude, God rejects him. God has nothing to say to proud, self-sufficient sinners. And the same law also operates in the life of the Christian. The Christian can't lose his salvation, but he can lose God's blessings. He can forfeit much fruitfulness. He can lose so much if he refuses to submit to God. Verse 6 of James chapter 4 is a reference to the book of Proverbs. There it says of God, towards the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives grace. And that's the truth that's applied both in Old and New Testaments. It is an unchangeable law of God. It's an unchangeable spiritual principle. Third, it's right for us to submit to God because of his love. There's another point of contact with verse 6. See what I mean about context here. God doesn't just resist the proud. He positively gives grace to the humble. <coughs> and verse 6 emphasises the tenderness and mercy of God. Listen to it again. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God longs to bless his people. He longs to strengthen them. He longs to guide them. God is longing to pour out his gracious blessing on those who yield to him in humble obedience. It's no surprise, it's no surprise that we're urged to submit ourselves to God. But what does this submission involve? How do we submit to God? How do we submit to God? First, we submit to his teaching. As we read the New Testament, it's obvious that Jesus' teachings drew varied reactions. At one stage, we're told, the great throng heard him gladly. But on another occasion, we read, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. 
Who can listen to it? They couldn't take the full force of Jesus' teaching. And later we read, after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now that's the most important statement. When we think of disciples, we usually have in mind a handful of committed believers. But we really have disciples who no longer walked with him. Had these disciples been true believers, this would seem to indicate they'd lost their salvation. That's something the Bible teaches is impossible. But the word disciple means simply learner. It was a common word in New Testament times. There were disciples of Greek philosophers, disciples of Jewish rabbis, disciples of many other teachers and leaders. They were learners. They were interested in what people had to teach. But there wasn't necessarily a personal commitment involved. There might come a time when they were unable to accept the teaching they were being given. If that was the case, then they'd leave their teacher and perhaps become someone else's disciple. And this is what happened here with certain of Jesus' disciples. Crowds flocked to hear what he was saying. And many of them were quite happy to be his disciples while he was performing miracles, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead. But then he began to declare teachings that stripped away people's pride and arrogance. He began to show there was only one way people could be saved. And that was when they cast themselves wholeheartedly on the grace and mercy of God. When Jesus started preaching such things, his so-called disciples drifted away and never returned. They were disciples, they were learners, they were listeners. But they set limits on what they would accept and believe. A true disciple must be governed by what he's taught. He must submit to it. Submission to God includes submission to his teaching. As Jesus himself put it, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Submission to Jesus' teaching was the seal of true discipleship, and the same is the case with us today. When we come to the Bible, we are to submit to its authority. And we are to submit, even when we don't entirely understand what it teaches, why it teaches what it teaches. Martin Luther the Reformer was able to say, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And every Christian disciple must be able to say the same. Second, we must submit to God's discipline. This vital issue is almost totally ignored in many circles today. Some Christians seem to think that God is responsible for all the pleasure in the world and the devil is responsible for all the pain. They think God is responsible for all the joyful experiences and the devil is responsible for all the harrowing ones. They think God is responsible for all the delights and the devil is responsible for all life's troubles. But that's a long way removed from the Bible's teaching. The Bible teaches that God is in control of everything that happens in the world. There are no accidents as far as God is concerned. And God often uses the hard things of life to discipline his people. Things like pain or sorrow. Things like deprivation. 
These are actually used by God to help people grow. The teaching of scripture is plain on this point. <clears throat> this is what it says in the letter to the Hebrews. Do not regard lightly the discipline of God, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 5 and 6. So to submit to God's discipline is nothing less than an act of worship. It's recognising his right to deal with us as he wishes. And we have an extraordinary example of, of submission to God, to God's discipline in the Old Testament. I'm sure you know the figure I'm thinking of, and that's Job. We're told that Job was blameless and upright. We're told he feared God and turned away from evil. But his integrity was no proof against pain. In one terrible day, he lost his vast flocks, herds and servants. And on top of all that, all his children died. Job's response to the news was staggering. We're told he fell on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job submitted utterly, completely, to God's discipline. The evangelist and author John Blanchard once spoke to pastors who had been imprisoned under Stalin's dictatorship. And they told him this, in prison, we learned not to ask why, but just to say, praise the Lord. Can we begin to match the submission of Job to those brave pastors from Eastern Europe? Third, we must submit ourselves to God's commands. So I think need saying in what view of what's gone before. But perhaps a scripture illustration will pinpoint the principle involved here. In chapter 2 of John's Gospel, we read that wine ran out, well, ran out at the wedding feast at Cana. The servants were at their wit's end. But Jesus' mother Mary knew the where the answer lay. And she said to the servants, with regard to Jesus, do whatever he tells you. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? That's the very essence of submitting to God. It's immediate. It's wholehearted. It's unquestioning. It's complete obedience to God's revealed will. Do whatever he tells you. <coughs> so we've seen why we must submit to God, and we've seen how we must submit to God. Let's look now at the second condition James tells us is essential to victory over the devil. We must also resist the devil, but how are we to do that? How are we to resist the devil? How to resist the devil? It's no coincidence that the command to resist the devil comes completely, immediately after the word submit yourselves therefore to God. The greater our determination to submit to God, the greater the intensity of the devil's opposition. So if we're content to be careless, apathetic Christians, the devil won't waste much effort on us. 
But if we're determined to comply with God's word, if we're determined to consecrate ourselves to God's service, then the devil is going to attack us again and again. And we must be prepared for this. The Apostle Peter says we are to resist the devil firm in our faith. The Christian is always on the devil's radar. And the Christian's responsibility is to resist. Just as our submission to God must be total, so our resistance to the devil must also be total. But getting down to practicalities, how are we to resist him? We must resist by knowing the devil's arguments. The devil's reasoning may be dishonest, but it is always subtle and persuasive. His first words recorded in the Bible are disputing the truth of God's word. It's hardly surprising that Jesus said of the devil, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the liar and the father of lies. We must resist by knowing the devil's attractions. He always tries to exploit the natural tendencies of human nature. It's human nature to want the good things now without thought of future consequences. It's human nature to think that we know better how to run our lives than God does. So the devil presents us with very attractive options that don't seem to conflict with our faith. But he then later uses those options to subtly displace God from the centre of our lives. Most are aware of these dangers. The letter to the Hebrews speaks of Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We must resist by knowing the devil's tactics. We must know how the devil operates. He loves to take Christians' righteous actions and twist them into something else. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, We would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. A scandalous sin had been committed by a church member at Corinth. Earlier he'd been put out of the church. But when next he wrote to the church, Paul said the man had suffered enough punishment. He should be restored to the fellowship in a spirit of love and confirmed his own forgiveness for the man. Paul knew that the hatred of the man's sin might have festered to become the hatred of the man himself. Then Satan would have gained a great victory. So it was important for the church to accept this man back into fellowship. Now don't get me wrong, it's unhealthy to be obsessed with the devil also unhealthy to ignore him. Our minds need to be stored with biblical information about the devil, his tactics, his schemes, the sort of arguments he uses. If we know that the devil exploits negative emotions, don't give him the opportunity to do it. The letter to the Ephesians gives wise advice on this. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. It's one thing to have a grievance, it's another thing to nurse it into something far worse. We know the devil exploits our weaknesses, so we must take positive steps to reduce the opportunities he has to do this. 
we know the same the sort of people, the sort of places, the sort of situations that are likely to trigger temptation in us. So wherever possible, we need to avoid them. So you see, there are sorts, lots of simple, practical things that we can do to resist the devil's tactics. And finally, we must resist by wearing the armour God has provided. Fundamental teaching on this is to be found in chapter 6 of the letter to the Ephesians. I'm sure most people here will have heard many sermons on this. The Puritan William Gurnall wrote a massive volume about this passage. And Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote two books on it. It isn't time to go into it now. I'll just briefly remind ourselves of the armour's constituents. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. As shoes, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit. This passage is an essential study for all Christians who are serious about their commitment to the Lord. So these then are the two basic requirements for spiritual victory. We are to submit ourselves to God and we are to resist the devil. Only then will we be able to claim the promise that the final element of the verse we've been studying gives us. The devil will flee from us. The devil will flee from us. Yes, the promise is there. It's in plain, straightforward language. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There are three important inferences we can draw from these exciting words. First, the devil is vulnerable. He may be one of the cleverest beings ever created, but he isn't all-knowing. Like any other fallen angel, he can't be in more than one place at the same time. He's strong, but he isn't all-powerful. He can be beaten back, forced to give ground by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is vulnerable. But nonetheless, we must be vigilant against the devil. The Apostle Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We told the devil tempted Jesus in the desert. Then he left Jesus until an opportune time. The devil was defeated on that background, but his withdrawal from the fight was only temporary. The letter to the Romans promises that Satan will be crushed under the Christian's feet, but that won't happen during our earthly lifetime. Great 18th century preacher and evangelist William Grimshaw of Harris once said, I expect to lay down my life and my sword together. So we need to continue to resist the devil by being vigilant. And we need to do it as long as we live. Only then will we experience the reality of the promise contained in tonight's text. But last of all, we need to remember we can be victorious over the devil. We can be victorious over him. In our lifelong battle with the devil, we are to be defensive but not defeatist. The protest song says, we shall overcome someday. 
Christian is able to say, I can overcome today. The letter to the Romans assures us we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we can have a victorious Christian life. We can know the joy of temptations overcome. We can make spiritual progress. We can have a closer relationship with the Lord. But only to the extent that we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. <laughs>